Good morning, church. So good to see all of you this morning. I actually love what our brother Charlie shared earlier, a verse in Jeremiah that says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is there anything too hard for me? Praise be to God that there is nothing too hard for our Lord. Amen. Amen. Scripture reading this morning comes to us from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, to chapter 3, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, to chapter 3, verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself. Being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Sorry, let me clip this in right now. Let me turn this logo to the back because Starbucks does not sponsor us, nor do they give any offering. So Starbucks doesn't pay me, so I don't want to advertise them. Uh, good morning. Oh, you can do better than that. I'm just kidding. You don't need to do better than that. It's okay. Jesus did better than that for you on the cross. All right. Some of you may know this about me, but I am a giant fan of the Lord of the Rings. Like, I'm a huge, huge fan of the Lord of the Rings. And I was so glad that when the movies came out, that it was the greatest movie trilogy ever made. And there's actually one brother in our church who knows this particularly well about me, more so than others. Okay? I said his name at 9 a.m., but it's here today, so I won't say it here at 11 a.m., okay? But you guys can try and guess who it is, okay? 
Uh, this brother, back when he was new to the church, we sat down and we got lunch together just to get to know one another. We were around the same age. We both worked in D.C., so it just kind of made sense to, like, get to know each other, right? And so, you know, we're talking, and, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I'm just, like, the best guy there is at the church, and I think I might be the holiest Christian there. I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. Um, you know, so we're just, like, talking, right? And so I started asking him, like, oh, like, you know, what do you like to do? What are your hobbies? Like, what do you enjoy doing? And he says, like, oh, I, I like to read. I said, great, awesome. What do you like to read? And he says, oh, I really like to read The Lord of the Rings. And I get really excited, right? And I'm like, finally, another Tolkien fan. Because I have all this stuff, but I have nobody to talk about it with. So I get really excited, right? So I just immediately start gushing about, like, my favorite characters, about my favorite scenes, about how much I appreciate the density of the story, uh, about how much I really enjoy um, all the subtle things that Tolkien does but never beats you over the head with, like how Aragorn is not just a ranger or a member of the Dunedain, but he's actually a descendant of the men of Westerners who come from the kingdom of Numenor, right, who have to flee the kingdom of Numenor after it was destroyed by Luvatar, after the men of the Numenorians invaded the land of the Valar because they were deceived by the evil Valar Morgoth and his servant Sauron to break the band of the Valar, and in retribution, Luvatar destroyed the city of Numenor, and the, the men of the West fled into Middle-earth, and that's where they enter into the first time. And Tolkien doesn't tell you any of this. He just implies it by saying that Aragorn is like a thousand years old, and you just, you don't even notice it, that there's this really incredibly deep thing, right? So I start going off about all this stuff, right? And this brother starts looking at me exactly the same way all of you are looking at me right now, right? And he's like, he doesn't say anything. He's just like totally silent, and I kind of run out of steam. And so at a certain point, I'm like, I'm kind of self-conscious now, right? I'm like, oh, like, that was embarrassing. <laughs> uh, and I'm just kind of waiting, and he's just, he's sitting there, and I'm sitting there. It's just silent. And after a couple seconds, he goes, yeah, I don't think I like Lord of the Rings anymore. <laughs> Right? I'm like, what? Why? What happened? What are you talking about? And he's like, uh, you know, uh, I just, I feel like if that's the standard of what liking Lord of the Rings is, I don't think I'm qualified to say that I like Lord of the Rings. I don't think I can say I'm at that level. And I can't help it, right? Because I, I love this series. I make it a point to read the entire series through at least once a year. My bookshelf is filled my, both my digital and my physical bookshelf is filled with books that I have purchased and I have never read. And for some reason, I just keep on buying more books and I just keep on not reading them. But even though I keep getting all these new books, I always come back to the Lord of the Rings series. I have three copies of the series. Some of them I have because like my original copies got like so worn down. Like, like, pages are literally falling out, so I'm like, okay, I have to replace these copies, um, but just in case, I'll keep these falling apart copies as well. Others of them I have because it's like, I just want the different editions. And this way, like, I'm like a connoisseur of Lord of the Rings. I'm like, ooh, do I want to go with my, my hardback version or my leatherback version, or do I want to go with the lightweight of a paperback version? And people always ask me, like, hey, don't you ever get tired of reading the same story again and again and again? Like, isn't it tiring reading the same book? And I say... Do you get tired of reading your Bible? I'm just kidding. I don't say that. That'd be like super pastoral of me there, right? No, the answer is no. Of course not. Because I am not one of those people who you can spoil movies or books for. 
I actually really like when you spoil movies and books for me. I'm the type of guy when you're like, oh, yo, let's go see a movie. I will actively look up the spoilers before I go and watch the movie or the TV show. Because for me, it doesn't take away my enjoyment of the show. It actually heightens my enjoyment. I love the moment of anticipation because I know what's coming. Like in that moment when Aragorn is about to lead the kingdom of men to a final impossible battle against the forces of Mordor and Sauron in order to give Frodo and Sam this impossible slim chance against all chances to climb Mount Doom and throw the One Ring into the fires of Mount Doom from which it was forged. By knowing where things end, I'm more able to appreciate and notice what is happening as it's happening. I love being able to watch a movie and see the foreshadowing that's going on or to see the little quirks in a character's personality and know how those quirks are going to change and how they're going to grow and change as the series continues. I love being able to watch a scene and think, wow, there's nothing important or insignificant about this scene. It seems totally insignificant, but knowing actually it's all going to come back and it's actually all going to be really important. This whole story is about a small, unimportant hobbit who changes the world. I love knowing the end. How much more would our lives change if we also knew the end? if we knew not just where we are, but where we were headed, how much easier would it be for you to endure the hardships of your life or to embrace the challenges of your life if you knew what it was all for or where it was all going? How much would our lives and worship as Christians change if we knew what God was doing here in the church? Because this morning, Our passage in the book of Ephesians tells us what God is doing in the church. So this morning, I want to invite you to join me here at the beginning, at the end, where Ephesians tells us that the church is the place that God has been building since the beginning of man, where he will dwell with his people, and it is the evidence of his goodness, his power, and his wisdom. The church is the place that God has been building since the beginning of man, where he will dwell with his people, and it is the evidence of his goodness, his power, and his wisdom. Before we go any further, we need to do a quick dive into the biblical, okay? As in the biblical theological, okay? It's a little, it's a little seminary joke for you because our church has like 5,000 seminarians, pastors, and interns, even though we only have like 200 members, okay? So for whatever reason, so... Those are for all my little seminarian heads. (laughs) Okay, anyways. Sorry, I apologize for my behavior. Pastor Paul's not here, so I can do this. You see, when we read through the history of the Bible, what we see is that God has been building a place where he can dwell with his people since the beginning. He is constantly building a place where he can dwell with them, where he can be with them, where he can be among them, and that they can come to him, and they can know that he is present, and he is there. And we see the very first dwelling place that God establishes in the Garden of Eden, that place where he walks with Adam and Eve, and they dwell with them. We see later God establishes a dwelling place in the tabernacle that the Israelites carry with them throughout the wilderness all those years. Later, Solomon will erect the temple of God, and God's presence will fill the temple so richly and so intensely and so passionately that it becomes impossible for the priests to enter because there's no room for them. 
Throughout history, we're told of all the different places where God's presence dwelled. Bethel, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. But through all those different places, there is one common trait that has existed between every single place where God has chosen to dwell. God has always dwelled with his people. The location may change. The setting may change. The building may change. But he always dwells with his people. He begins by dwelling with Adam and Eve, and then Noah and his descendants, and then Abraham and his descendants, and Jacob and his descendants. And then God begins to dwell not just with one tribe and one lineage, but he begins to dwell with an entire nation. And what we see when we read through the history of this is that the circle of who God's people is gradually with time gets larger and larger and larger. It starts with two, then it becomes four, and then it gets larger and larger and larger until eventually it encompasses an entire nationality. But in the New Testament, we see that God is again expanding the circle. He is expanding the answer to the question, who are the people of God? There's a lot that we could say here in this passage. But this morning, let me invite you to join me as we approach our passage by asking ourselves a couple of questions, okay? First, who are the people of God? What do they look like? What makes them the people of God? And second, who are the messengers, the teachers, and the leaders that God has appointed for these new people? And third, why did God choose these people to be his people? So who are the people of God? Who are their leaders and messengers and teachers, and why did he choose them to be his people? Okay? So I've been working through this, like, mini-series through Ephesians, but it's gotten all crazy because I was in Ephesians 1, and then I did Ephesians 2, and then for no good reason, I jumped to Ephesians 5 and started talking about marriage, and then I went right back now here to Ephesians 3. So it's kind of like a, a, like a biblical whiplash thing is sort of going on here, right? So let me kind of situate you back into Ephesians 1 and 2, because everything that comes before our passage today in Ephesians kind of the end of two and the beginning of three, is about defining who the people of God are. Ephesians 1 and 2 is very careful to define and explain who are the people of God. Because it used to be that the people of God were defined by a specific nationality and a specific race. The people of God were the descendants of Abraham and of the tribes of Israel. They were those of Jewish descent. And even if people from outside of those bloodlines came into the religion, Ultimately, they were still considered to be outsiders. But after Jesus dies on the cross, we're told that the people of God are no no longer only those of Jewish descent, but rather they are all those who believe in Jesus. Here in the New Testament, God's people are now all those who confess that they've fallen short, that they've fallen away, and they are unable to pick themselves back up or find their way back without the mercy of God blood, and righteousness of Jesus. We're told in Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And this was a big deal back in the days of the early church. Almost every single one of the Apostle Paul's letters that we have in the Bible address this issue, the tension that exists between Christians of Jewish descent and Gentile or non-Jewish Christians. Their divide was ugly, and it was deep. 
that it was constantly being addressed. It was one of the defining issues of the early church. There were Jewish Christians who would pressure non-Jewish Christians to essentially follow all of their Jewish practices, or else they weren't really Christian. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to abstain from certain foods. They needed to observe certain religious holidays. They needed to live their lives a very specific sort of Jewish way, or else in some way, shape, or form, they would imply you're not really being a good Christian unless you do this. And it can be easy to look at this behavior and to think, wow, what a, what a bizarre behavior for them to take their cultural practices and to enforce them upon another and to imply that somehow you're less of a Christian if you don't do it but it goes deeper than that for these Jewish Christians. You have to understand that for these Jewish Christians, it's not just a cultural preference. From a young age, they've been told, this is how you live a holy life. This is how you live in a way that's pleasing to God. This is what you're supposed to do. From birth, they've been raised and steeped in this teaching and in this tradition. So it's not so easy for them to suddenly let go of all of that and say, and understand that apart from Jesus, all of it is pointless, and in Jesus, almost all of it is unnecessary. How many of us are guilty of having deeply held beliefs about what it means to be a Christian or how a Christian is supposed to act that are beyond the Bible's definitions of what makes a Christian? How many of us have secretly or maybe not so secretly thought of other people as being maybe not really Christian or somehow being less Christian or not properly Christian because they didn't align with our political beliefs or they didn't react to a situation the same way we would or they don't feel the same way about the things that we feel very strongly about. And if we're honest, I feel like I can safely say this with confidence. I think each and every one of us has been guilty of this at some point or another. But this morning, the word of God challenges us to revisit our understanding of who are our brothers and sisters and what makes them our brothers and sisters in Christ. It challenges us to re-examine our relationships our, and perceptions of others. Do we really believe that the only thing, the only thing that makes another person a brother or sister in Christ is whether or not they confess that Jesus and only Jesus is their righteousness? Or are there other things that you're attaching in there? So if these are the new people of God, who are the leaders and the messengers and the teachers that God has appointed? If the people of God are no longer defined by a race or a nationality or, or a Jewish purity code, but rather through a shared confession that there is no way to God except through the blood of Jesus, then who are the leaders that God has established over them? Why does that question matter? Because you can tell a lot about a group by its leadership. You can tell a lot about a group of people or a company or an organization based on the people that it chooses to be its leaders. It's for the same reason that tech companies don't ever dress in suits, right? They're like, oh, yeah, you know, we work hard, but we're on the cutting edge. We're not too stiff. I'm like, we're really fun and chill, but we also are, like, really smart and really cool. That's why in our office, it's all beanbags and no chairs. And, you know, there's no walls for cubicles. It's, like, all about free thought, man. But then, like, lawyers all have, all have to dress up. It's for the same reason that companies invest so much time in market research and money 
into picking the people who look just the right way and portray just the right lifestyle that they want for their image, for their brand, for their company. It's why companies are very careful about which of their executive officers that they put out in front of the camera and in public and which ones that they don't. So who are the leaders and representatives of this new people of God that Jesus Christ establishes? Look with me in Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes this. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Jump to verse 7 with me. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the Apostle Paul writing this, okay? The Apostle Paul is arguably the most influential and famous leader of the Christian church. And if it's not the Apostle Paul, it's probably the Apostle Peter. The apostles Paul and Peter during this era are the two pillars of the Christian church and to this day are arguably the most famous Christians in history. These are the two men that God has put forward and appointed to be his leaders, his messengers, and his representatives for this new group of people that he is calling his own. He says, these are my people and these are their representatives. Peter and Paul, what do we know about them? Peter, Peter was a traitor. He swore to stand by his Lord, to defend him if necessary. He swore to never betray his trust and confidence. But when the pressure came, Peter denied ever having even known Jesus. Three times, each more forcefully than the last, he says, I do not know this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Peter who traveled with Jesus, ate with Jesus, slept out on the rocks and under the stars in the cold with Jesus, suffered with Jesus, lived with Jesus, witnessed miracles from Jesus, said that he loved Jesus. Peter betrays him and abandons him in his hour of need. Paul persecutes the Christian church. In the name of God, he is responsible for the murder and imprisonment of God's people. The very first Christian martyr in the history of the Christian church is because of Paul. He whips the crowd up in a frenzy, and he stands by in approval as they throw stones at this early deacon, and they murder him. These are the leaders and the representatives that God has chosen to appoint over his people. A traitor, a murderer, a coward. And it's a pattern that continues to this day. The Apostle Paul in our passage describes himself as being the least of all saints. Right? In other words, he's saying, I am the worst Christian. There is no Christian who is worse than me. And, you know, I think when he says this, he believes it. But I also think the only reason he believes it is because he never met me. And I think if he met me, he'd be like, okay, I probably got to bump myself up a couple of ranks. Like, I'm, I'm probably not the bottom in that case. 
Because I may have never caused somebody to be martyred, but I also didn't plant like a gazillion churches. And my teachings and my sermons and my writings are not responsible for the conversion of millions and millions of people. I think at best, I can probably say, there's probably like four people who came to Jesus and like I had a finger in it. Like I had a finger on that scale. Like I wasn't even the one who was like, do you accept the Lord Jesus Christ? And they're like, yes, I accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Like that wasn't me. I was like years later, a former student tells me like, oh yeah, I became a Christian. Okay, cool. Praise the Lord. But if these are the leaders that God has chosen, what does that tell us about his people? What does it tell us about who the people are that God is inviting and gathering to himself to be his people, to be his dwelling place? It tells us that they're traitors and that they're cowards and that they're liars. It tells us that the people of God are people who make promises and break them. There are people who know the truth but choose to lie about it anyways. There are people who are tortured by shame, crippled with anxiety, and struggle with their mental state. By any objective standard, we can all agree that it is literally impossible for the Apostle Paul to be considered the least of all Christians. Right? It is just by any objective standard of measurement, it is impossible to say that that guy is the least of all Christians. But we see that he believes it. Why? Because the shame of his past weighs so heavily upon him. He cannot help but to believe it, despite all the evidence that would suggest the contrary. We see that even the Apostle Paul wrestles with the scars of shame and regret. The people of God are those who have nothing to offer, nothing to give, nothing in themselves to brag about, and yet at the same time work so hard, try so hard to find something, anything to boast about. The people of God are those who try and work so hard to find something, anything to say that this, this makes me worthy of acceptance and love. How about you? Do you qualify to be a member of the people of God? Are you low enough to be included and counted? This morning, are you a coward, a traitor, a liar? So why does God choose these kinds of people to be his people? Why does God choose traitors and liars and cowards? Why does he choose the the depressed the ashamed, the fearful, and the poor? Why does God choose the good-for-nothings, have-nothings, and are-nothings to be his people? Look with me to verses 7 through 10. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why does God choose people like us to be his people? It's so that his power, his wisdom, and the unsearchable riches of his mercy might be made known to all. Verse 10 talks about the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Do you know what he's talking about here? He's talking about angels. 
the Apostle Paul is talking about angels because angels, like any other perfect creature that has been untouched, untainted, and uncorrupted by sin, look at a people like us and say, how could a holy and perfect God ever dwell with these people? How could they ever be his? How could such a divided and broken people ever come together to be one body where God would dwell? Friends, we may be traitors, we may be liars, we may be cowards. Our hearts may be broken and run down. Our minds may be cluttered, perverse, and poisoned with arrogance. But God is working in us this morning. In our passage in Ephesians 2.22, we are reminded because the Apostle Paul tells us that we are being built together into a dwelling place. It does not say that we have been built together. It does not say that we will build ourselves together. It does not say to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and build yourselves. It says we are being built together by God. God is doing an impossible thing in his people. He is uniting them together despite the thousands of things that would divide them. He is cleaning and restoring his people despite the thousands of things that stain them. God is hard at work in his people, and he is transforming them day by day, step by step, little by little, into people that resemble him more and more so that those people will become loyal and courageous and wise and hopeful and holy. Friends, God is hard at work in you, and he is hard at work in me, and he is hard at work in our church. Some of you may not know, but um, some years ago, I was serving as a pastor full-time in New York, and while I was there, you know, amongst a myriad of reasons, uh, ultimately, uh, I had to step down because I was diagnosed with a crippling and very severe anxiety disorder. Um, I wasn't able to, like, you know, preach a sermon for longer than, like, three, four minutes without having a panic attack. I wasn't able to lead a Bible study without having a panic attack. I wasn't able to sit in meetings without having a panic attack. I wasn't able to sit in prayer meetings without having a panic attack. Just all day long, I was just having panic attacks again and again and again and again. And I don't know if you know this, but it's not really a healthy situation for a pastor or the church that's sitting underneath them. And here's the thing, I never used to be that anxious of a person. You can talk to most of my friends growing up, I was pretty happy-go-lucky. But now, I honestly can't remember the last time I woke up and just felt normal. Every morning I wake up, every morning is a constant battle against an endless flood of worry and stress and anxiety. And there are days when I wonder, will I ever feel happy? Will I ever feel a sense of happiness that lasts longer than just an hour or two? Will I ever just be at peace? And I feel so discouraged as a result. Why aren't I getting better? It's been like five, six years lots of therapy, all kinds of things. Why aren't I getting better at this? How can God dwell in this broken vessel? Our passage in Ephesians reminds me 
that it is exactly people like me that God chooses to dwell in. Our passage in Ephesians reminds us that the people of God are not those who are self-sufficient, but they are those who every day fall on their knees and confess, God, you must be sufficient for me because there is nothing in me to give. I've got nothing left. And in response to that confession, God says to his people, come, come, I am not finished with you yet. You may be broken down, you may be weary, you may be discouraged, but I promise you, you will be made new. And in all of this, it is God who receives the glory and the honor and the praise. And even the angels are amazed at the wisdom and the power and the unsearchable riches of God's mercy. So let me close with two thoughts. If you're broken down, and discouraged, if you're weary and anxious and worn, if you're a liar, if you're a coward, if you're a traitor, if you've lost your way and you don't know the way back, this is the place for you. I promise you will have plenty of company here. And I promise you, God's not finished with you yet. And the second thought is this. Let me encourage you to ask yourself the question, what do the people of God that you're in community with look like? Does the community of God's people that you identify with, spend time with, do life with, do they look like a people united by a common need and a common savior? I think if we're honest, for most of us, The community of God's people looks more like the people who went to a common school or have a common age or a common life stage or a common passion or a common spiritual discipline or the same hobbies as we do. We're told that when angels look at the church, the people of God, they're supposed to see the infinite wisdom of God at work. When angels look at your community, what do they see? Do they see the wisdom of God, which is the foolishness of man, weaving together people that have no business on paper being together in impossible circumstances? Or do angels see the conveniences and preferences and comforts of men? Do they see people united and their common brokenness and need for Jesus? Or do they see people united because it's just easier that way? And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with having friends who share the same passions and share the same hobbies and all those things. I'm just saying is, are those the only people that you're in community with? Is there any part of the community that you share that demonstrates the manifold wisdom of God. I guess all of this is sort of my long way of saying, go join a CG, okay? Registration, I think it's not too late. 
okay? You can still join a CG. It is the best way to make community with people who are in different life stages and everything else with you. And don't go to the one that you know all your friends are going to either, okay? Uh, registration may have closed, but just message Pastor Jacob and say, you know what? I really need a commune with God's people. Uh, you are my shepherd. Lead me and feed me as your sheep. Uh, but go join a CG. Won't you pray with me? Gracious God, we are so thankful this morning that we get to be your people and that you are our God. We are so thankful that even though we may face through all the ups and downs of life and even though we may be discouraged, we are so thankful that, God, you call a people like us to be your people. And we're so thankful that even when worship is over, even when our prayers have ended, even when we have gone home and when we are fast asleep, you, you are at work in us, that you have not given up on us that you have begun a good work and you are finishing it. So God, we ask that you would continue to give us the perseverance and the hope as we await your good work to be finished. Continue to lead us in all your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.